You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. On your way down, grab your Bible with me, and I just want you to hold that up just as we've been doing over the last several months of this year as we dive into God's Word as the roadmap for our life. If you don't have a Bible, I want you to grab one out of the seat back in front of you. If your Bible's on your phone tonight, I want you to have that in your hand. But all of us, let's raise God's word in surrender and prayer to him. Father, we thank you for the reminder through song tonight that your mercy is more in our life. And God, not just through song, but through word that you have breathed out yourself through your word. God, that we're reminded that we are in desperate need of your mercy and that you have the answer for the problem that is sin God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We pray that as we dive into your word tonight, that it would come to life in our hearts and minds, that it would change us from the inside out, that we would apply it as real, honest truth that it is. We love you and we thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this weekend we join into and continue to look at the Israelite nation and how God has saved them, freed them, and called them into relationship with himself. And so with your Bible in your hand, if you want to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 19, we're going to be covering a lot of information throughout Exodus 19 through 26. And those of you that have been doing your reading plan through the F260, you know that this week was a lot of instruction as we looked into God's command through the Ten Commandments, the building of the tabernacle, and all of the elements that would go into that. My hope tonight is that we would see these things come to life and be able to apply them into our very life. If you're new tonight to MCC, I want to welcome you and encourage you throughout the service tonight that you would take a moment and fill out that welcome home card found in the center of your bulletin. That's one of the first ways that we get to know how to walk alongside you, get to know what God is doing in your life. If you've got prayer requests, there's a section on the back for you to fill out so that we can come alongside you this week. So here in Exodus chapter 19, we have seen the Israelites begin to wander within the desert. And throughout their wandering, they are going to go back and forth between gratitude and grumbling. You're going to see that throughout this journey of the Israelites. And what's interesting is that this trip that God has called them to in the promised land that he's prepared in advance, if they were to go in a direct route without any distraction, they could have completed this journey in about six months. But instead, it took them 40 years. And that's because of distraction and disobedience. At this point, God has parted the Red Sea. God has quenched their thirst by causing water to flow from a rock. He's filled their bellies with manna and quail that have fallen from heaven. And now they find themselves camping out in the desert at the foot of Mount Sinai. It's here that we see in Exodus chapter 19, verse 3. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. 
This is God meeting with Moses and giving him instructions. He says, you yourselves have seen what I have done in Egypt. He says, I have carried you on eagle's wings and I have brought you to myself. If you've got a pen or a highlighter, this is a great verse to underline, to look at God's intentionality and his power as he calls them to remember that he is the one who has set them free. He has brought them, his people, to himself. Verse five, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, he says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. God, throughout the entire Old Testament, reminds his people of what he has done in Egypt. In fact, the Jewish people today still take in remembrance of the freedom that was purchased and bought for them by setting them free out of the land of Egypt. Again, they call that the Passover, and it's a reminder of God's power and the freedom in which they had from slavery within Egypt. But for us today, and just as we sang a moment ago, our rescued story is not tied necessarily to oppression in Egypt, but indeed we all have been a slave. All have been a slave to sin. And we have bought those shackles on our own. We have purchased our slavery by our own decisions to trust ourselves, shackled by temptations and the desires of our flesh, But as the book of Ephesians tells us, God who is rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ. This is our first point for tonight. God's grace displayed through the work of Jesus is the very foundation that we stand on, we remember, and we celebrate. His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, right? New every morning. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Indeed, this is not a work of our own. Just like it wasn't the work or might of the Israelites in Egypt, God has secured it through his power. And just like the Israelites, we today have been invited to experience him. And here's the truth, this journey that we are on, very much like the journey that the Israelites are on as we're reading, is filled with choices. The time between now and eternity is filled with choices. This journey that we're on requires us to choose the path that we're gonna walk. And if we don't get that path right, we're gonna find ourselves like we have many other times, stalling out, stuck, feeling as if we are alone, and very possibly walking out on what God is doing right here in front of us. But praise be to God, God does not have himself put into another place even in our disobedience. God is near and he is inviting us to experience him. In verse 10, God lays out a roadmap for the Israelite nations on ways in which they're going to experience him. But before they're able to experience him, they have to prepare themselves for his presence. Look at this. Verse 10 says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. 
have them wash their clothes. You can imagine the Israelites that are walking through the desert. They're eating quail and bread. Um, that, that's just a recipe for probably some stinky people, right? Like they're probably not the best smelling individuals, but it's more than just the odor of their clothes. What he's doing is he's showing symbolism that you are unclean. I am clean and holy. He said, so I want you to prepare yourself, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day, the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai into the sight of all people. He says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch foot on it. Well, why, why would we need to worry about that? Well, he goes on. Whoever, the touches the, whoever touches the mountain will die. That's effectively what God says. You are unclean. If you touch the mountain, you're going to die. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. God is inviting his people here within the desert to prepare themselves for something holy. In fact, he's inviting them to prepare themselves for an invitation of relationship with him. God is getting ready to invite his people into a covenant, an unbreakable promise with himself. For me, when I read this this week, it reminded me so much of marriage. And just as today the sun is out and these little flowers are popping up, I've already seen that there are those that really jumped in and got married just at the right time today on my Facebook feed. But I, I love marriages and I love the counseling in marriages because it's amazing to see all the preparation that goes into a marriage. All of the flowers that are picked, the venue that's chosen, the dress that they're going to wear, the food that's going to be served, and then somewhere down the line they pick a minister that's going to marry them, and they are hopefully good looking, and uh, they've got their words together, and they're not going to show up late. Like Those are simple things right, that they're looking for. Usually it's down at the bottom of the list. They do all the expensive things first, and then they work their way to that. But why so much intentionality on all of the decorations, all of the design, all of the hair, all of the stuff that goes into a wedding? It's because they're preparing for something special. And biblically, marriage is a covenant. It's an unbreakable promise that we enter into with someone else. And that's why there's the celebration and the preparation that goes into it. There's no difference than what we see playing out here through the text as God's people are making preparations to experience him. It says, on the morning of the third day, we see God make his entrance. Verse 16. It says, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. And everyone in the camp trembled. I'm sure they did. Verse 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke was billowing up like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. What an entrance, right? Very much like when the bride enters the room at the wedding, everything in that room changes, doesn't it? The doors open, the music changes, and everyone's attention is where? It's on the bride. In fact, in many weddings, what people do when the bride comes in is they stand. They stand in honor. 
in reverence, in respect to the beauty and wonder that is before him. The people of God, the Israelite nation, they are watching the very power of God descend upon this mountain and they can do nothing but tremble and be in reverence of it. And then in Exodus chapter 20, verse one, God begins to speak these words. Look at them closely. He says, I am the Lord your God who has brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Do you see God's continued reminder of what he has done? Do you see his continued reminder of his power that is at work? There's a reason for that. And the reason is God doesn't want his people to think that they did anything to earn this freedom. God wants to remind his people that he's the one who does the heavy lifting. God wants to remind his people that they can place their trust in him no matter what it is that he's asked them to do or what things he's given them as instructions because he's faithful and he's good and he's powerful. From here, we reference this as the Ten Commandments that God gives. Let's read them together. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. God's simply saying he is the one and only God. He goes on to say that you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. He says nothing is to take my place. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. He says, honor my name, not use it in vain or to advance your own personal agenda. He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In other words, set a time, a place, a moment that is dedicated to remembering him, his faithfulness, his goodness, and his power. All four of these have to do with something. And it's not external somethings, it's internal somethings that lead his people to a vertical deepening of relationship with him. All of these commands, these first four, all have to do with deepening their relationship with who God is and what he's done and elevating God above everything else in my life that so distracts me. You see, for the Israelite nation and for us today, we have all been distracted. We've all been tempted and have fallen into temptation to give the love that we have received from God away to other things. We've used the very breath in our lungs to curse his name. We've been disobedient. But you see, God's desire for our life is to sit on the throne of our heart and he will not share it like a love seat with something else. He is not in the business of making friends with false idols. He's not in the business of trying to cuddle up to the things that are already distracting you. God is saying in these first four commandments, I am who I say that I am and I want you to put me above everything else because he's worthy of it. These first four commandments have everything to do with our heart and relationship with God. And if these first four 
are not things that we apply to our life, then we're gonna see that the remainder of these commands, and in fact, any other command that God will give or instruction on our life, we will struggle to do it because our heart is not aligned here. But when our heart is aligned with him as the alpha, omega, the top, there's a natural response that overflows out of that. You see, our vertical relationship with God always, and I don't use that lightly, always leads us outwardly. It leads us horizontally to the relationships that are around us. I think it's evident in our own life that when we are out of line vertically with God, our relationships horizontally with others is worse. Do you experience that in your life? Do you see that taking place in your brothers and sisters in Christ? I see it all the time in myself. When I am not vertically in line with what God's desires are for me, my relationships externally lack. But when I'm in tune with who he is and what he's done and how he's working and his power that's raised me from the grave, then my love and care and compassion for others to sacrificially give of my life and self is more. And it's designed that way. Because our external things that we do do not save us. It is God and our relationship with him, our surrender to him are what save us. And everything outside of that is an overflow. But you see God goes in to great detail here in these next six commandments. He says in verse 12, honor your father and mother. He says simply submit to the plan that he has designed through the family. Remember, the way that God created family, the way that God created childbirth, the way that God created union between man and wife, it was purposeful. It was intentional. He didn't make a mistake by that. He knew what he was doing. So he says, submit to the plan that he's designed through it. He says, you shall not murder. In other words, life is God, not yours. You shall not commit adultery. You are called to one if indeed called to any relationship. It is not for you to add to. Verse 15, you shall not steal. God is saying, I will provide for you. You do not need to take from others. Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Be pure in your life. Be faithful to others. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Don't live in longing for something that you do not have. Know that it is God that has given you everything that you possess and everything that he desires for you to have will be given. Don't live with the expectation of if only I had what they have. Especially in our world and culture today, that we all think we have a front row seat to people's lives through a story or through Instagram or through TikTok. Those are false representations of a life that we wish that we could live that only leave us in longing for something that God has never promised to give. We need to be settled in the fact that we can trust him with it all. 
Now, it's important to recognize that these 10 commands that God has given to his people are not the end-all, be-all, right? I think sometimes we get in that box where it's like, these are the 10. If it's on the 10 list, then I need to make sure that I follow it. Everything else, that's just water over the rock, right? No, everything that God commands is essential for our life to apply. In fact, God would go on over the next few chapters as we read this week to give over 600 commandments to his people, on how to dress and what to wear and what their lifestyle should be and how they should prepare in advance for different things. And so this begs the question for us, especially those who are exploring the Bible for the first time. Why so many commands? Why so many rules? Why so direct with the things that God is asking me to do? Simply put, God's commands are given to protect our relationship with him and one another. Remember what was Jesus' response when the Pharisee came and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all of yourself and love others as a response to that. Keep in mind also that the Israelite culture, they are coming out of a very upside down reality within Egypt. In fact, this world that they lived in within the Egyptian culture was backwards. What God is saying here through these commands is that you've been around rampant sinfulness. You've been around false gods. You've been around the sexual immoral. You've been around a culture that is corrupted by greed and power. But now that you've come to know who I am, the grace that I've given, and the promises that I have, here is how I want you to live. God's saying, I want you to live differently because of what you've experienced from me. He says, I want your focus. I want your love. I want your respect. I want your heart. I want you to honor those that I've given you to raise. I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to cheat. I don't want you to steal, murder. I don't want you out there throwing shade at people. He says, I want you for me because I love you and I want you to know the reality of what it is that I have done. And so I'm giving you these guardrails in the directions that you need for a life that honors me and honors those that are around you. In our home right now, We have a two-year-old who just recently turned two on Wednesday, sweet Evelyn, and we have a upcoming four-year-old. What an exciting time in our house. (laughs) Our expectations for our children right now are vast, especially when it comes to, you know, not feeding the dog all of the food that's on your plate or maybe not making everything in the house a weapon that you can use against your brother or sister, right? Now, we are not giving our children the expectation or commandment like God is here saying, you shall not murder, right, or commit adultery, but we are beginning to give them these guardrails in their life that are to honor the things that we value as a family, And these guardrails oftentimes can be really hard to stay consistent with when we're exhausted at the end of a long day, right? These guardrails can be really hard to stay consistent with when our kids, when we just want to kick our feet up, watch Bluey for the 10,000th time, and just let them go at it with each other. 
That would be easier, right? In the moment, yes. But if that's the regular expectation in our home, that we will only apply these guardrails when we have the energy to do so, or when it's most convenient, what will the byproduct of our children be? Will they honor others and the expectations that they give them? No. Will they have an image of a God who desires relationship with them if they haven't experienced the love of a father or a mother in the way that God has designed that? It will be harder. You see, the reasons why these guardrails exist and why we do it in our family is because we want our kids to enjoy the freedom of life Not that they get to do whatever they want, but they wouldn't have to feel the same things that we have experienced in our life as failures. And you see, God is a much better father than I am. And he knows my son way better than I do. He knows me way better than I do. And if God has a plan and a purpose for my life, and he's given me commandments to follow, I would be wise to do them because he's faithful. Don't miss this. God, our heavenly father, and his purpose is on display through the commands and the directions that he gives. He's on display when we remain in obedience to what he's done, to what he's called us to. And so in light of this, I hope that you'll take some time tonight or throughout this week to go back and think about the places that you're struggling to trust him with in a commandment that he has. Could it be that you've allowed for the love of something else besides God to take a seat in the place of your heart that you're struggling to let go of? Could it be that there's an anger in a relationship that's been broken in the past that is limiting your ability to worship God completely because of a hindrance within your heart? Perhaps your desire to be like or to have what someone else has has stolen away the beauty of what God has created you to be. The beauty of the book of Exodus, the beauty of God's plan and desires throughout this is that he's building a new culture He's building one that reflects the promised land that he's leading them toward. It's one built on promises, one built on love, and especially one built upon grace, knowing that we've all fallen short of these things that God has for us. These commands that God gives us are not out of duty, but rather they are out of devotion. In chapter 25, God would go on great links to be physically present with his people. And he begins to articulate for them this promise of the fact that there is to be one who in the midst of our broken covenant with him, as in our rebellion against him and our disobedience to his desires, that would come and be the ultimate sacrifice for that. You see, the next six chapters of Exodus lay out every detail of God's dwelling through the tabernacle. Exodus 25.8 says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Does that just not blow your mind when you read this holy, powerful, awesome God desiring to dwell within a broken, sinful, disobedience, grumbling nation. 
Does that not express his desire to relationally be with his people? I was deeply, deeply moved by that when I read that this week. Within the tabernacle, God would go on to talk about how they would construct it, the details that would go into it, the practices, the uses. He talked about how they would have the opportunity to be able to taste and see the holiness of God. But in order to enter this place, you had to be cleansed and pure before the sight of the Lord. And we read that throughout this week about all of the different things that a priest would have to do to prepare through sacrifice and through attire and through the burning of incense so that they could even approach God. And then the other side of that is, as we read through the Old Testament, there was oftentimes where not only would they put like bells on the bottom of their dresses or their fancy ceremonial dress that they would enter the holiest place for. And the reason why they would put bells there is so that way, if they stopped moving, the bells would stop ringing, which means that they died because they were unclean to enter into the presence of the Lord. So they would have this like rope attached to them and they would just pull the priest out, right? They would just pull him out. He's dead. We're going to go ahead and take care of that. Set that aside. He was not holy in the presence of the Lord. But all of this again points to the reality of who God is in his holiness, that he is not to be approached within sinfulness or uncleanness, that there's a boundary in which has taken place. And now as we sit here today, thousands of years later, we know that God is not restricted to a physical place. For the Israelites, he traveled with them. He dwelt with them within the tabernacle, a vivid physical reminder of his presence. But for us today, God has made himself apparent and known through Jesus Christ. And once again, God went to great lengths by sending his son to live amongst, to dwell amongst his people and to be a sacrifice for our sin. You see, it is through the grace given by Jesus that God does not just live near me like the Israelites experienced, as in he's over there in the tabernacle, but God comes to live within me. That should be one of those moments that allows for you to understand the great gift that it is, that God doesn't just want to come and be by you. God doesn't want to just be in a room with you that you don't have to go to a place to experience God's presence, but indeed God has come to dwell within you. And remember, you and I are broken and sinful people still. Our flesh is still dominant oftentimes in our decision-making. But through the listening of what it is that God is doing within us and allowing him to transform our hearts, we see that the byproduct of that is external horizontal change. Ephesians 2.15 says his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You have been built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the very foundation, the chief cornerstone. And hear this, in him the whole building is joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. 
And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, just like in the tabernacle, God's spirit has come to live within you as you trust in him and him alone. In fact, just as we've seen throughout the display of the tabernacle and throughout God's instructions within the Ten Commandments, when we truly trust him, when we align our life with him, what happens inside of us is the things that are from us begin to get pushed out. They begin to be transformed. God's spirit and presence is moving the gunk of my heart externally. And let me tell you, that can be a very messy process, church, because it requires me to deal with the things that I have so harbored or trusted in for a lot of my life before knowing Christ. But now that God has come to dwell in me, I am no longer the old creation, right? I'm a new creation, created in Christ Jesus to do good works in which God has prepared in advance for me to do. And so the more that I lean in, the more that I trust him, the more that I dig into his word and to his presence that's living inside of me, the more that these things begin to make their way out. God's grace covers us and his desires for us can push out the distractions that are within us. It doesn't mean that the distractions of the world around us will become any less. In fact, let me remind you that they are going to become increasingly worse. Do not be fooled. But what happens in here, what happens in the dwelling place of God's spirit, that is what is most important. So that no matter what is happening in front of me and or to me, I can trust that God lives within me. That is grace through the cross of Jesus Christ and my acceptance of what he's done there is what allows for me to endure. And if that means that I am to give my life as a ransom for his sake, then it's worth it because his spirit has sealed me, not just for the now, but eternally. That means that my identity is not built up in the things that are around me or the influences that come at me. My identity is now rooted and established in who God has made me internally. In fact, when I think about fear and I think about anxiousness, both things that I struggle with oftentimes deeply, I am reminded that it is when I trust in the confidence of God's spirit at work in me that I can discover a peace that is more than me, that I can't manufacture, that I can't just find relief in any other thing, that when I really dig into him, I find that the peace of God pushes out these feelings of insecurity. The forgiveness that we so need to apply in our life to the relationships around us if we apply God's forgiveness to us first, it makes those relationships that need forgiveness easier because we recognize that we ourselves have been forgiven, that his mercy has covered us completely. So again, why go through all the trouble? Why all the commands? Why all the instruction? Why this week did I read chapter after chapter of the 
way that the poles are to be set in the tent and all the little gold bearings that are to be in there and the dimensions of the throne room. Why all of that? Why the detail? It's because God wants full attention and God has given a roadmap for people to experience him through the details because he wants us to live differently because God wants to show us the depth of his care as we embrace and share the fullness of his provision both now and eternally. God wants us to see that he's more. He wants us to know that he's trustworthy and he's given us a roadmap to be able to do it. As we read this week, I was reminded of a passage in Hebrews that articulates a call back to this moment at Mount Sinai and a promise that's been given through Jesus Christ. It's one that I would encourage you, even as you go home tonight, to look into deeper. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. It says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or a voice speaking words that those who heard it be began to beg that no words would be spoken anymore. In fact, you have not come to a mountain in which there is death of an animal. You have not come to a mountain in which the sight was so terrifying that Moses himself said that I am trembling with fear. You, my friends, are not like the Israelites in what it is that God was doing in that moment. God is unchanging. But his promise through Jesus and the sacrifice that's come from that has given us a promise that we can apply to our life. And that's verse 22. You, my friends, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator, the bridge of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the word and the blood of Abel. In other words, you have come and you have experienced the God who gives grace and mercy found in Christ Jesus. You have come and you have discovered Forgiveness for your sins. Today, my hope is that you will know God's faithfulness personally. That you would stop trembling in fear of what it is that he has desired of you and just remain stuck like the Israelites were stuck in that moment. But that you would recognize that because of Jesus, you can approach him in full confidence knowing that you have messed it up, knowing that you've fallen short, but knowing that he's invited you in to surrender these things in your life and to say, God, I trust you in that. And as you do so, your life, your purpose, the very things inside of you will begin to look different. His grace in your life is what demands more of your life. If you need to respond to what it is that God is doing in your life as Lord and Savior, or you'd like someone to pray with you, I invite you to potentially come up and let's have a conversation here. Or maybe just go over to the person that brought you today or that you know in the room that can pray for you 
and what it is that God is doing in your life. Don't miss this. God wants relationship with you and he's gone to great lengths to secure it. But he's waiting for your response to it. Stand together and let's pray and give thanks. Father, thank you for what it is and the work that you've done on the cross by displaying your grace that has secured for us an eternity that is more. God, for your word tonight, I pray that it would be applied, that we would see that living for you is better than living for ourselves. God, that your mercy, when it applies to our life, can radically transform us. And God, we thank you for that gift because it's one that we don't deserve, nor did we earn or work for, but it's one that you have done all the heavy lifting to secure for us. We love you and we thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name, amen.